been going through the book of Acts, and we are looking at, you know, what does it mean to be, to be His church? And we've, we've seen some characteristics there, and, and I think, I hope as you're seeing these, as we're talking about these characteristics, I hope that as you're doing this, that you're actually seeing some of that in our church. It may not be as big or as spectacular as, as you might find in, in, in the book of Acts, Maybe it is, but I hope you at least see that, that that's what we're, you know, that's what we're about, that's what we're trying to do. But I also hope that you also see the areas where, where, where we're not really getting it, we're not really, you know, connecting and, and, and measuring up, and that that would be, like, just encouragement challenge for us to not be satisfied. So I think every time we come to God's Word, there's always kind of this two-way thing that happens. There's encouragement, and then there's challenge. But challenge doesn't happen unless you want to be honest that we need to grow and we need to change. So let's look at chapter 16. Verse 11, we're going to back up a couple verses. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had, got, who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. 
and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and then they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visit, visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Interesting story we have here. We, we had seen how God had been leading Paul and Silas and leading them kind of in a negative way by telling them you, they couldn't go to certain places. And then they have this vision, and from this vision, they end up here in Philippi. And there's a lot going on here. There's a lot going on here. But one of the things that's kind of underlying this, it, 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 it has to do with what the world thinks when it starts to really try to, to see who Jesus is. And, and how it's problematic because, because we're, we're kind of trying to interpret and filter from the wrong perspective. When I was growing up, living in Oklahoma, we went to a place called Falls Creek every, every summer. And Falls Creek was, um, it's, it's a Baptist encampment up in the mountains of Oklahoma. If you think Oklahoma is just flat farmland, most of it is. But there are a couple places that are actually kind of beautiful. And it's, you know, so up in the mountains was this um, Baptist encampment. And for like, for four, four weeks, you would go a week at a time. And there would be thousands and thousands of young people. I think in one summer there may be 10, 20,000 young people who would go to this encampment. And it was kind of interesting because, you know, a lot of us go to places like maybe you go to the Baptist Pukahea and, and you know, there's cabins out there. Or, um, you, you know, you might go to, you know, one of the others like Timberline or something like that. But at Falls Creek, different churches owned 
the different cabins. And I, I remember, like, our church was, was a small church um, from a small, like, like, farming town. And we had the worst cabin in all of Falls Creek, like, by far the worst. And what made it worse was we actually shared it with another small church. I mean, we couldn't even have the worst cabin to ourselves. We actually shared it with another. And just right next to our terrible little place, which was basically concrete blocks, was one of the bigger churches from the city. And, you know, one time I, I made friends with one of the boys from there, and I was still in elementary school. I wasn't, in, I wasn't a teenager yet. But, you know, I was hanging out with him, and then he invited me to their place. I had come from this cabin that was, you know, concrete floors, these cinder blocks, tin roof, um, hot, um, pretty much, you know, bunk beds and a couple tables to eat off of, kind of somewhat exposed. And then I go to his cabin. It's like two or three stories. It's got a pool table, ping pong table, air condition. I'm like, what's wrong with our church? Right? Why, why, why does you know, he get that? And then I, I would go, and as I made more friends over time, I would go and I would look at these other churches. And you know, it, it would sometimes actually make me feel bad about our church. Like there was something wrong with our church. I didn't know then, I was just in elementary school, I didn't know then that what I was doing is what I think a lot of us still do. A lot of us are still so infected by the world's value system that we cannot see God at work and we cannot understand God at work unless it somehow pops up in the way the world would see that at work. Or we just misinterpret it altogether. We're, we're still trying to interpret what God is doing through our value system, through the value system of the world. And because of that, we often will miss God at work. We'll miss him at work because we think God is only going to show up in numbers and if we got numbers, then God must be working. We can't possibly believe that God is working slowly or that God is working in ways we cannot see or God is slowly like transforming someone's life. You know, I've used this example before about, you know, we, we, we'll, we'll, you know, if, if you ever like planted something and which from seeds. You know, if, if every like couple days you dug up that seed to make sure it was growing, well, you would kill it. And that's what we do as, as Christians. There's sometimes what church leaders do, pastors and teachers, they get impatient because they don't see the growth. They don't see the evidence. How do we know who God wants us to reach? There's, there was a movement in, 
in um, what they used to call church growth evangelism. And there was this philosophy that said, you should go reach people who are like you. And of course, you know, when I was learning this in seminary, I knew it was wrong. But then I was also thinking, where am I going to find a community of really cool bald guys? You know, where are they? I've never seen a colony of cool bald guys who, who like to work out and run and play golf. Where, where, where is that guy? But what they were really saying is, you need to go to people that's the easiest for you to reach. People like you. Who does God want us to reach? People just like me? People just like you? When we use the world's value system, that makes sense. It's the, it's the easiest fruit to reach. But there's something more problematic, not just that, that not understanding when God's at work, not understanding who He wants us to reach, but it's more problematic because as long as we interpret things through the world's value systems, we will never understand grace. We will never really understand that all that we are, all that we have from God, is undeserved. Anything we accomplish that, that we're bringing our best effort to, it's only a value to God if God is in it and God is empowering it. Paul will write about this later on when, he, when he's writing to the, to the knuckleheads at uh, the church at Corinth. And these guys, were, these guys were fighting and dividing over everything. And he starts off this very angry letter. If you don't know that Paul can get angry, well, we saw him get a little annoyed here. He's really angry at the Corinthians. And he tells them in the first chapter that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human, no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul's saying, if you're going to evaluate things from the, from the world standpoint, what you're going to miss is God at work. And what's going to happen is you're not going to understand grace. You're, you're going to boast. See, we, we can't help it. We still evaluate things, you know, with the world's status symbols. And it's kind of a weird world we live in because now, you, you know, we, we, we might evaluate people based on their, their wealth. But what we need to understand is that in the world today, that could mean we evaluate you as God loves you and God's blessed you, or you're greedy and it's a sign that you have abandoned God. We do the same thing with people who are poor. We either think like, what a blessing that they can, they can live humbly, or we think, 
you know, poor them. They can barely get by. The problem is, is that we base everything on how much somebody has, not who they are. And when we evaluate them, we evaluate them based on the world's perspective. Are they, are they strong? Are they strong? Hey, I want them here. They'll make us stronger. Or are they weak? You know, I like some weak people around because then I can help them and I'll feel good about it. Make no mistake, God is not impressed with our wealth or our lack of it. God does not love us because he needs our strength and he doesn't love us so he can feel good about loving us. God loves because he is love, period. It's who he is. It's his nature. And if we're going to be followers of Christ, if we're going to become more of who Jesus is in our lives, this needs to become more and more part of our nature. Well, this text lives with, in, in this, this part in the story where there they are in Macedonia. And if Paul had had his way, what he was doing didn't make sense. What made sense was go back to the churches you've already invested in and, you know, build. And maybe if we can get those churches strong enough, then they'll go and they'll, they'll reach more. But he was forbidden. Holy Spirit says he was forbidden. He was directed to go past a lot of the people he had worked with before, to not just go to the neighboring cities. No. Had he just been focused on his own plan, he would have missed where God was leading him. There's two huge things that are happening here. The first thing is, if you know your geography, when he goes to Macedonia, he's not simply going to another place. He's actually going to an entirely different continent. Paul had big dreams, bigger than all of us. He had big vision. His, his understanding of what he believed God was doing through Jesus Christ and what his role is was huge, but it still wasn't big enough. He still thought like, all right, we're going to get this strong foothold in Asia Minor. And God goes, nope. Going to Europe. And he goes. It's huge. It's not based on when Paul felt he was ready. It's not based on when the churches in Asia Minor were ready. It's based on when God says go, he went. Because what we find is that other huge thing here. God had already prepared the way. Lydia is no accident. Paul meeting Lydia is no accident. But understand this, Paul would have never met Lydia. He would have never presented to her the gospel and not only she, but in her entire family, most of her friends of, in her kind of spheres of influence 
would have become believers if he hadn't been focused on what God wanted him to do rather than what he thought he should do. It's amazing. I mean, Paul must have had so many, you know, thoughts along the way, like, oh, man, we're going by another city. You know, we, we could have stopped at this town, this village. Then he gets, you know, on the ship, and he shows up in Macedonia, and he goes to Philippi, and there's no synagogue. Paul's game plan, if, you know, if Paul had a daily organizer, and he's like, okay, we're going to show up in Philippi tomorrow, like, he would have his little checklist. Right on the top of the checklist, go to the synagogue. There's no synagogue. Oh, man. So instead, Paul goes, okay. And somehow, he either knows or he hears about this group of women. And it's not just women, it's Gentile women, non-Jewish women that gather by the river. And they're praying. And he goes, all right, no synagogue. Okay, God, I hope you know what you're doing. I'm going to go to the river. And he goes there. And then it starts to get good. He starts, you know, Lydia becomes convert, her whole family, others believe it. So he keeps going back to the river. And then Paul has another one of those moments. He's, he's, he's confronted with how incredibly, like, like, pagan Philippi is. Because there's this slave girl, and this slave girl talks about has a spirit of divination. And if you know anything about that world, like, like divination was a big thing. It was, it was talking about telling the future. But, but the Roman and Greek prophets were notoriously ambiguous. In other words, they, they would say things that could be interpreted multiple ways. And usually in the stories, the person interpreted it the wrong way. And then afterwards, when they were defeated or they were going to end up dying or losing everything, they would have this, this kind of epiphany where they'd go like, oh, now I understand what the prophecy was. It's too late. What good is a prophecy if I'm not going to understand it until after the fact? It's kind of pointless. But nevertheless, this is what the stories were about, and this is what the society was, was like. They wanted to have some sense of what was in the future and then some control over how to interpret it. And so, yeah, the slave owners are going to make lots of money because of it. And if you look at what she's saying, if you think that she's talking to a Jewish audience, you might go, well, it seems pretty clear. If you think she's talking to 20th century, 21st century Christians, you might think it's pretty clear. She says, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Pretty clear. But she's not talking to modern Christians, and she's not talking to Jewish people in the first century. 
She's talking to people in a city that doesn't really have a Jewish presence at all. There's not much, if any, exposure to Judaism. The phrase, most high God, would not have made them think about Yahweh, Jehovah. No. Instead, they're probably thinking what people had thought before when Paul and Barnabas healed somebody and then they were worshipped as Greek gods. This statement that she's saying is actually confusing the people. And Paul can see like, oh man, okay, she said it once, right? But it says she kept saying it every day. And Paul knew what happened. He knew that that no matter what they did at Lystra, no matter how much they said, we're not Greek gods. And it tells, tells, it tells you that they, they rented their clothes, they ripped their clothes, they were so grieved that, that, that what they had done in the name of Jesus had been interpreted as idolatry. They're so grieved by it. But it says the people still believed it. And that didn't end well. In fact, that's one of the first times Paul is basically left for dead after being stoned. Paul's not so concerned about his physical well-being. He's more concerned about he wants to share the gospel. And how can he share the gospel if this slave girl keeps causing confusion? And so he casts the demon out. And then we get this other story, this third story, this third story of this jailer. And it's not just the jailer, it's the jailer and it's the other prisoners. So because of what they did with the slave girl, the slave girl's owners kind of incite this, this riot almost. Paul and Silas get arrested and they get imprisoned. And and then we, we, we see God at work. They've been unjustly imprisoned. Their life has been threatened. They've been beaten. Their legs are in stocks. There's seemingly no hope of escape. And then they start doing the thing that most of us would not even think of doing. They start praying. And we don't really know what they were praying, but here's what we, we know for sure. They weren't praying what most of us would have prayed. God, get us out of this. You know, God, you know, move the magistrate's hearts to free us. You know, whatever. We, we, that's what we, we want to see, how we can get out. You know, make the wounds on my back not itch, or not feel so bad. No, because their praying becomes singing. Paul is doing what Paul always does. No matter where he is, whether he's walking free, whether he's under house arrest, or whether he's here in a prison, he's living for Christ, and he's proclaiming the gospel. 
and it tells us the other prisoners were listening. God brought Paul and Silas not just because this was a huge move of the church into Europe, but also because there was, there was Lydia and her household. And also because there was this slave girl who was being taken advantage of. And also because there was this jailer. This jailer and these other prisoners who would never have heard. It's pretty amazing. Paul misses all of this if he does what makes sense. If he goes with his plan. If he follows his strategy. He misses all of it. But God felt this was so important. Believed this was so important. It is so important that he said, no, I'm going to stop your plans and I'm going to give you a new plan. And that's what happens. So when we look at this text, what do we see? Well, think about the main people that are mentioned. Think about Lydia, the women on the riverside, the slave girl, the prisoners, the jailer. One of the themes we find in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts is that the church ministers to all people, especially those considered less. Church, his church ministers to all people. We don't minister just to people who we know can help us. We don't minister just to the people that are easiest to reach. In fact, our ministry should be directed towards those that the rest of society might consider less. And you might go, well, well why is that? Well, as I read from 1 Corinthians, God wants to demonstrate his power through us. If, if, if the church was full of powerful people, full of all the, you know, the influential, the rich, all the geniuses, if that was a church, it's so easy to look at it and say, that church is successful because they got a lot of human power. It's harder to see, like, that's God. That's why Paul says, I mean, he tells the Corinthians, and I think some of the church at Corinth might have felt it was an insult, and maybe some of you might feel it's an insult too, when Paul said, you know, how many of you are noble? How many of you are smart? How many of you were the cool kids in school? How many? He says, no. What God is looking at is whether you're less or more is not the point. It's whether you can be used 
by God to help the rest of the world see who God is. Who better to do that than those who might be looked down upon? See, Lydia is kind of a mixed bag because in some sense Lydia is a woman. Now, she's a Gentile woman. So the, the situation for the Gentile women was you know, different from the situation for Jewish women in the first century. But she's still a woman, and she still would be, have been considered kind of like, you know, second class. But we also see she's a very successful businesswoman. So she kind of represents, you know, one side group that normally wouldn't have, you know, had a lot of power. But on the other side, she's successful. It's okay. Those aren't the things that are important. What's important is she was faithful. She believed. What's important is she was influential in leading her family and leading others of her friends to believe. With the slave girl, you know, sadly, we don't get any more of her story. We only get the story, the part of the story that tells us she was, she was at least freed. That, you know, in case you are confused, demon possession is not a pleasant thing. And not only was she experiencing this, she was being taken advantage of. And there's freedom there. But then we see the jailer. And the jailer was certainly not a powerful business person. Jailer spends most of his day in jail. See the prisoners, the ones that were in the innermost place. It was probably like a, like a dungeon. There's just hopelessness everywhere. God wants to reach everyone, especially those considered less. One of the proudest, you know, I, I'm not a, you know, big, you know, I've been Baptist my whole life, but I don't act like Baptists are the, you know, the only good denomination or whatever, but one of the proud moments of being Baptist was when I was in Kenya. And when I was in Kenya, you know, I was teaching there, and one of my students took me to uh, where he was ministering. And as we were talking, he was explaining to me that in Kenya, depending on your ec economic class, that determined kind of which um, denomination you were going to be a part of. And he said, in Kenya, the, the lowest level, they're Baptist. And they're Baptist because that's who the Baptists went to reach when they went to Kenya. And for me, like, I don't know the whole story. I'm not going to tell you it's a, there's, there's not, you know, bumps along the way, but I'll tell you this, it's the right heart. 
But the other thing we see with the jailer is that how is Paul going to witness to the jailer? Well, it's going to be in prison. How does he get there? Unjustly accused, unjustly arrested, taken to the innermost part of the prison. What does this tell me about followers of Christ? What does this tell me about his church? What it tells me is if we're going to reach difficult people in difficult places, we have to be willing to go to difficult places. If we're going to reach people in difficult places, we have to be willing to go to difficult places. But the attitude of so many Christians is, God, I want you to reach the world. I want you to go in the highways and the byways. I want you to go from you know, the penthouse to, you know, to, the, to the gutters, and I, and I want you to reach everyone. But... I don't want you to use me to go to those places I don't find familiar or I don't feel comfortable in or that are even dangerous. The jailer never hears the gospel. He and his family never become believers if Paul and Silas are not willing to go to a city that has no Christian witness, no Judaism, and then be unjustly arrested, beaten, and thrown into prison. If you actually go, and I would encourage you to do this, if you actually Go and study the history of Christianity. Not the one that's told in your history books. The one that's told in your history books, it's almost like all Christians did was Jesus came and then there were the Crusades and the Inquisition and then we have modern times. And that's Christianity in a nutshell. Can't deny Crusades, Inquisition happened. Horrible things I don't consider them anything remotely having to do with Christianity that I know. But what I want to challenge you to do is go back and read the stories of Christians throughout the past 2,000 years who have given everything, everything, not just to share the gospel and move on. Devoted their entire lives to not just reaching people, but with, with staying, discipling, helping them to grow. If you just read the story of William Carey, the first modern missionary, if you just read his story, you will know the reason Christianity is here today is not because of things like the Crusades, not because of things like Inquisition. It's because of heroes 
who didn't know they were heroes. They were just willing to follow Christ, even if it was to difficult places. It appears this entire story, all the way back to when it first started talking about the Holy Spirit forbidding, is, directing, is directed toward these encounters with Lydia, the slave girl, the jailer, the prisoners. Paul's simply staying true to his principle. He doesn't know this. He doesn't know. God didn't say, I want you to go to Macedonia because there's a jailer there that needs to know me. No, he doesn't know that. Paul is simply doing what he always does. Nothing gets in the way of the spread of the gospel. He's not seeking martyrdom. He's not seeking persecution. Why would he want that? Paul would only want to die if somehow dying helped spread the gospel. No. He's willing to go wherever God leads, even to difficult places. The last thing I want to just share with you that I see here in this text about what Paul and Silas are doing and really what the church is, is that his church sees every situation as an opportunity to share the gospel. You know, the last bit, it's kind of weird. You know, Paul finally lets them know he's a Roman citizen. And because he and Silas are Roman citizens, the magistrates can now be punished because they unjustly beat and imprisoned them. They, they had rights as citizens. And they're justifiably afraid. And they were just kind of hoping Paul and Silas would just, you know, learn their lesson, get out of town. And Paul and Silas like, no. But I think this, this happens for two reasons. If I know Paul, Paul wants to talk to the magistrates because he wants to share the gospel with them. Unfortunately, the text doesn't record that for us, so we don't know for sure. But it does tell us a second reason. Paul has started a church in Philippi. That church is going to be there after he's gone, and he needs to make sure that that church is, is protected, its reputation is protected. All these lies that were told about Paul and Silas, the ones who helped start the church, they needed to be cleared up at least at the levels of the magistrates. Church is going to be there. But the other reason is, there in, is said there in the text, like after he's, they're let go, they go to Lydia's house. They spend time with the disciples. This isn't like guerrilla warfare missionary, drop in, drop out. It's like, no, we need to establish this church. We need to help this church become not just a group of people who profess Christ, but a community of disciples, people devoted to Jesus Christ, devoted to God's word. And so he stays. He doesn't do the easy thing. He doesn't do the thing that would have made the magistrates happy. No, he does what needs to be done to bring the gospel to Philippi and to invest in the church so that it can stand. So his church, we're called to minister 
minister to all people, no matter where they are, no matter whether there's convenient in our house or in our school, in our workplace, across the street, or whether God is leading us to people who are stuck in difficult places. He's calling us as a church to be a church that's not just people who show up, but we're people who are so in love with God, so in love with His Word, so in love with each other. That we're a community of people who are disciples and disciple-making. That's His church. That's the church I believe He wants us to be. Let's keep moving, moving towards that in everything we do.